Wonderful. Okay, uh, we're going to take some time in God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 14, so if you have a Bible or a device, plus the texts will be up on the screen that you can follow along. Uh, let me read the text, and then let me pray, and then we'll, we'll launch into what the Lord has for us. I'm, I'm reading different sections out of chapter 14, so you're going to have to listen and follow along. First, what I'd like to read is actually a passage that was included last Sunday out of chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. Then I'm going to jump ahead to verses 53 and 54, and then I'm going to jump ahead to verses 66 through 72. Okay? Here we go. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jump ahead to verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And jump ahead to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And he wept. Father in heaven, would you take this text, this, these historical events, the recording of them, and speak to us this afternoon. Kingdom truths, spiritual realities, that you put this into history and into this book for us to know and understand. Open wide our hearts to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been studying about the life of Jesus through the book of Mark, and every week we talk a little bit more about Jesus, and everything we've been saying about Jesus is just amazing. Jesus is amazing. And each week we unfold a little bit more about just how amazing 
Jesus is. Today we're going to add to the list, and today what we want to look at is the faithfulness of Jesus, how he was faithful to the Father, how he was faithful to love, how he was faithful to his mission to make disciples. But what's truly amazing about his faithfulness is the conditions under which he was faithful. The times and the situations where he remained faithful, true, under threat of opposition, false accusations, even condemnation and facing death, these were the times when Jesus remained true and faithful. He never stopped being who he was. He never stopped being faithful to the Father. He never stopped making disciples. If you read through the Gospel of John, you get to chapter 13 of the Gospel according to John. Jesus was just about facing the cross. He was getting very close to the cross, and yet he stops to wash the disciples' feet and teach them this marvelous kingdom lesson about servanthood and love and leadership. In the midst of the cross, his own death looming over him. Now, in our text that we read this afternoon, Jesus is being put on trial by all the religious leaders. And yet, throughout his being on trial, there is this interspersed focus of Jesus towards Peter, one of the disciples. And through it all, he's teaching Peter some of the most significant lessons in discipleship, lessons that will turn out to make Peter the great apostle of the New Testament church. And this is all taking place while Jesus is, in a sense, on trial. The lesson was, and the lesson is, for us this afternoon, is that it is only the faithfulness of Jesus that can transform our unfaithfulness. It is his faithfulness where the power comes and the ability comes to transform our unfaithfulness. Jesus exposes our unfaithfulness, forgives it, and by his faithfulness empowers us towards great faithfulness. Throughout the book of Mark, there are two major discipleship themes that Mark writes and lays into his gospel. You could boil down discipleship, according to Mark, with two questions. Do you understand? Do you really understand? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand about the kingdom of God? Do you understand the gospel of God? It's the first tier of discipleship. Do you really get it? Do you understand when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God? When he talks about eternal things, do you get it? When, when you hear the phrase, the gospel of God, do, do you truly understand that gospel of God is Jesus Christ, our substitute, laying down his life in our place, his righteousness for our unrighteousness? Do, do you get it? Do you understand? First phase of discipleship. Second, Will you remain faithful to what you now know to be true? Do you understand what is true? And will you remain faithful to what is true? Will you stand up for it? Will you hold to it? 
especially when there's struggle, opposition, resistance, difficulty, threat of harm. Will you remain faithful? Will you hold fast to them? Will you live them out? Will you remain faithful to what you know to be true? This is what is often referred to as our witness or our testimony. This is the witness of our lives, the testimony of our lives. Do we remain faithful to this gospel message, to this Savior we look to, Christ? Does our life reflect and display the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Now, the Greek word for witness or testimony that we have in this, and this is really a key word in chapter 14. It's rarely used in Mark, but all of a sudden it starts showing up everywhere, like seven times in a short amount of verses in chapter 14. It's barely mentioned before. Now it's mentioned like crazy. It's a major theme in the text that we read. And the Greek word is actually, in Greek, sounds just like martyr. It's the word we get our term martyr from. So we're saying your witness, your testimony, it's kind of saying your martyrdom. And so that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about affirming something that's true. We're talking about this, the stuff that equips and enables us to stand for the truth against the opposition, to hold fast to what is true when there's threat of harm, when it cost us. Will you be a martyr? Will you bear witness? Will you testify? Meaning, we're talking about testifying even if it costs you your life. Question number two of discipleship. Will you remain faithful to what you now know to be true? Will you remain faithful even to the point of it costing you your life? How fast will you hold to this gospel? Now, what better context to help us grasp this concept of being a faithful witness, giving true testimony, than a trial? And that's the setting that we have. Jesus is on trial. But what I want to point out is while Jesus is on trial, so is Peter. There's two trials going on simultaneously here. And this afternoon, we're going to focus on Peter's trial in light of Christ's trial. I want to break down the message, these three parts. Peter's charge, Peter's crime, and Peter's judgment. Let's start with Peter's charge. You mean a charge before the crime? Yes, that's how our text reads. He gets charged with a crime before he commits the crime. Okay, so long before Tom Cruise was heading up the pre-crime division in Minority Report, Jesus was predicting people's crimes before they took place. And that was the first paragraph that we read together. Peter, disciples, you will all fall away. The Greek word for fall away sounds just like scandalized. That's our word, our English word. You will be scandalized. 
you will fall away. You will break down. You won't hold up. You won't bear up with the truth. You won't hold fast to your testimony. You'll be scandalized. You'll fall away. The term has a bit of a passive sense. It's talking about a kind of stumbling, falling into the wrong. What Jesus is talking about here is a little bit of a contrast between the disciples here and Judas. Judas deliberately seizes an opportunity to betray Jesus. What Jesus is now telling the others is you're going to fall away. You're going to be scandalized in a situation. He told them earlier in chapter 13, verse 9, to be on their guard. What he warns them and is predicting is, is not so much what we saw Judas do, but rather to be caught off guard. It's not like a person is walking down the path of life, sees a pit, sees a hole in the ground, and jumps into it. It's more like a person is walking down the path of life, and there's a pit, but the person's eyes are here and there, thinking about this, thinking about their next promotion, thinking about their next race, thinking about their next purchase, thinking about their next meal, and they stumble into the hole. There's a kind of a passive sense. You weren't watching. You weren't on your guard. That's how this came about. You fell into it because you weren't paying close enough attention. James Edwards writes it this way, says, Jesus warns the disciples to guard against the kind of sinfulness of which most of us are most guilty, sins of weakness and irresoluteness rather than sins of intention. We do not plan on sinning, but neither do we hold the fort when we ought. This is so much a part of our challenge. This is why Jesus is pressing this issue be watchful, be on your guard. You don't realize the danger on the path in front of you, and so make sure you remain watchful. And then our text tells us the source of the scandal. Quoting the prophet Zechariah, God is speaking here, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is what's going to scandalize you. This is what is going to be so disillusioning to you, what is going to catch you off guard and cause you to fall away because I the Lord am going to strike the shepherd the one you're following the one you're looking up to the one who is your hero who you're relying on and looking to I am going to strike him and when I strike him you will be scattered Be on your guard. With this foretelling of this falling away, Peter objects. It's not going to happen, Lord. You, you don't know me. You don't realize how I feel about you. You don't understand what's in my heart. Everything about myself tells me, Lord, I would never deny you. I feel so fixed in my heart. In fact, here's the, the real catch. Peter singles himself out. 
Lord, these, these other guys, yeah, they probably will. But I won't. I love you more than they do. They say they love you. I love you more. They say they're committed. I'm committed more. Jesus, you got this one wrong. They might do it. I would never do it. What's the purpose of Jesus telling Peter and the disciples ahead of time that they're going to fall away? Well, there's a couple reasons that I have. First of all, by saying this ahead of time, Jesus is going to prove to these men, but to Peter in particular, that the condition of their heart is far worse than what they realize. Peter had a perspective on his own heart, and Jesus tells them, actually, Jesus knows his heart more, and says, Peter, this is what you're going to do. And Peter says, that doesn't match who I am. That's because you don't understand who you are. Their need is greater than they realize. And one of the most difficult lessons in the Christian's life is to appreciate the actual danger of the remaining indwelling sin in each of our hearts. It's a very difficult thing to come to terms with. I meet with a group of men on Friday mornings. We're reading through a book by Mark Jones called Knowing Sin. And our chapter this week was about this very thing. In that book, Mark Jones writes this, the guilt of sin is eradicated, the dominion of sin is broken, yet the remainders of sin abide in believers. It goes on to write, ignorance of the nature of indwelling sin leads to a failure to prepare for the battle against it that rages in our souls and tests the loyalty of soldiers of Christ. A violent enemy resides as an unwanted guest within every Christian. Do you see why Jesus is stressing this important about importance of be on your guard, be watchful. You underestimate your enemy. You don't know your own heart. So be careful. Be watchful. Secondly, by telling these men ahead of time, it shows us Jesus remaining faithful to them while knowing all about their unfaithfulness. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. He's pointing out you are going to be unfaithful so that as the story plays out, we can see the contrast and we will watch Jesus continue in his faithfulness for these disciples who he already knows will betray him will leave him, will flee from him, which makes Jesus' faithfulness all the more amazing. He knew they were going to leave him, and he still stayed the course for them. In the text that we read, Jesus said, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This phrase sort of reflects back in chapter 10, verse 32, where they were approaching Jerusalem together and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The statement is not trying to say, I'm going to be ahead of you, talking about the distance between Jesus and the disciples. The statement is drawing attention 
to this promise that boys, while you're going to fall away, I want you to know there's going to come a time in the near future where I'm going to regather you. Soon you're going to fall away. But I'm going to go the way of the cross. The Lord is going to raise me up. And when he raises me up, I'm going to regather you. And we'll be walking again together soon. So in the midst of him predicting or foretelling their failure, he's already telling them the future outcome. I'm going to regather you. Secondly, the crime. The scene now is Jesus and Peter on trial simultaneously. Now, Jesus is being interrogated by the religious authorities who have already determined in their hearts that they want him dead. So the trial is kind of a setup. They're just looking for testimonies. They're trying to coordinate testimonies. They're trying to provoke testimonies because they've already decided they want this man dead. So just now they just have to figure out the logistics of how to condemn him so that he can die. While this is taking place, Peter is being questioned by a young girl. This is down below by the fire. In other words, we're getting, given the impression that both are taking place within one picture frame. Like you could be sitting there with your iPhone and you could catch both Jesus maybe up on the balcony and he's on trial here and down below is a fire pit and there's Peter with some bystanders and you can get them both in the same shot. They're happening simultaneously within sight of each other. Is being questioned by a young girl. Now, it was bold of Peter. He, it appears that he did take a step beyond the rest of the 12 by following Jesus and coming into the courtyard. So there was some sense of boldness for him to be there. Nevertheless, he's inconspicuous and he's at a safe distance from the real trouble until a young girl notices him and asks him, aren't you with Jesus? Don't you know that man? It's meant to be a stark contrast here. First of all, for the young ladies in the room, teenage girls, preteen young girls, please don't take offense. You're somewhat being stereotyped here as being not very dangerous. Could I just encourage you, God made you to be strong and courageous and filled with faith. The point of this little girl here is that, look, if you want to hurt somebody, if you want to intimidate somebody, if you really want to test their faith, you don't send a little girl to ask, well, do you believe in Jesus? Because a young girl is least threatening. If, if you want to really intimidate somebody, I mean, you get, what, Vito Corleone who, with a baseball bat who breaks knees for a living. And you say, now go send him and say, now, do you believe in Jesus? Or pay the price. The little girl comes up to Peter. So have Jesus with the religious leaders, the men of power, the men of authority are up top, pressing Jesus. And down below, a little girl is pressing Peter. And there's the contrast. Peter's first response, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know or understand I don't know about Jesus. I don't know him personally. 
I don't know who he is. None of it. I'm completely disassociated from him. Haven't read any articles about him. Haven't been following the news. Haven't been with him. Don't know him personally. Young lady, I don't know what you're talking about. He denies having any knowledge. The accuser, the girl, spoke the truth. The accused lied. The rooster crowed. Peter relocates, moves around a little bit, and, but she finds him again. This time, she doesn't charge him directly, but talks to the bystanders around. To them, this man is one of them. He denies the claim a second time. Then there's the third accusation. Now it comes from the bystanders towards Peter. And here it says Peter begins to call down a curse. Now, several translations lay this out that Peter called down a curse upon himself. But that's debatable. Himself is not in the text. And the verb and the grammar here would indicate that he's not calling the curse down on himself, but in fact, cursing Jesus. So left a bit open-ended, but the grammar indicates, where does that calling a curse go to? And the grammar would say, not to himself, but to Jesus. Not too many years after this event, when the Roman government was seeking out Christians to put them to death, the test was often to tell someone suspected of being a Christian to curse Jesus because that was considered the test. Pliny the Younger, a Roman magistrate, realized he would say true Christians can't do it. So if you really want to find out if someone is a Christian, tell them to curse Jesus, and you'll smoke them out because a true Christian could not get themselves to do such a thing. That's the test that you can use. One of the commentators that I've been using, Garland, he just says, in my opinion, Mark implies that Peter commits this very blasphemy, and this would make Peter's fall all the more dreadful and his restoration all the more remarkable. Peter denied the Lord three times. Seems to be some kind of magical, universal understanding with three. If something happens in three, it's established. You, you know it to be true from the very Old Testament. How do you establish a truth? Well, with two or three witnesses. So a, a plaintiff and two witnesses make three. If you can get a testimony three times, you know you can be assured you've got the truth. We all know three strikes and you're out. Okay, that establishes the fact you can't hit the ball. Okay, you had three strikes. You have no ability to hit the ball. Get out. It's time for somebody else to step up to the plate. You're done. We know all we need to know about you at this point. And over and over again, and you find throughout the Bible this, if it's in threes, 
there's this way of emphasizing, saying, now we, we, we really have the truth at this point because it's been said three times or it's, it's taken place three times. After Peter makes his great boast, we didn't read about the prayer in the garden. We'll most likely take that next week as its own account. But during that time of praying in the garden, the disciples, Peter included, fall asleep three times. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to encourage them not to do. And then, then the story plays out in this very real, blatant way. Three times, Jesus says, just pray with me. And three times, they fall asleep. They doze off. They can't do it. Three times, meaning we've established the fact you are unable to watch and pray. You're unable to hit the ball. You're unable to stay in the game. You don't have what it takes. And then the story goes on, and Peter denies, even knowing, after just saying, Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. I will die with you rather than deny you. And yet he does it three times. So we have Peter's charge. You'll fall away. You'll deny me. We have Peter's crime. He actually did. All the way down to actually cursing Jesus. He went from the highest boast to really the lowest sin. So the third point is Peter's judgment. I told you that there were two trials going on here. Jesus was being put on trial and Peter was being put on trial, but there's actually a third about to take place in this story. After Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin, by the religious leaders, and after Peter was condemned by the young girl and the bystanders, Jesus was about to take the stand before his father. Actually, more than a courtroom, it was the temple, the real temple the heavenly temple, the one that the tabernacle and the temple were designed after. So Jesus goes to the cross, lays down his life, and from there enters in to the heavenly temple. And he enters into, if you remember this, going into the sort of inner sanctum the Holy of Holies. This is like the center of the presence of God. And there is the Ark of the Covenant containing the Word of God. And on top of this box is the mercy seat. The place where the high priest would have to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed lamb to atone for the sins of the people. It was all a picture it's all a picture, all a type, all a reflection, all a foreshadowing, all to clue us in to what was actually taking place when Jesus entered into the heavenly temple and went into that holy of holies, the place where no sin could enter in, 
the very presence of God. And Jesus comes on his own merit. Father, I have lived my life faithfully without sin. My greatest delight has been to do your will. All I wanted to do was speak what I heard you say. All I wanted to do was to do what I've seen you do. This was my greatest joy. And so I lived a life in human form on this planet, walking in this love and obedience to you. And now I'm here with a righteous life in the Holy of Holies. I have my own blood that I spill. I want you to know that I'm taking my blood and I'm sprinkling it now on this ark, on this mercy seat. And I want you to know that this blood, this righteous blood, is for Peter. It's for Andrew. It's for the others. It's for Ron. It's for Christine. It's for Gordy. It's for James. It's for them all. I'm giving it a righteous life, Lord, so that you will see this. When you look down and you see reason to condemn, I want you to see this blood and know that it's reason to pardon. And the response in this courtroom situation, the response in this temple from the Father was satisfied. Justice has been met. Justice and mercy were married together, found their common place. The sins of the world can be forgiven. Peter's judgment was established. Guilty of the worst now pardoned of it all. Peter's name is mentioned just one more time in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark's account. After the resurrection, when the women come to the tomb after Jesus' death, they see a young man dressed in white who met them and said, hey, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's, he's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But now go, tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Be sure to include Peter. In fact, don't just tell the disciples, but single out Peter. Make sure you tell him that he is going before you to Galilee. Same phrase. Go tell Peter, Jesus is going before you to Galilee, just like Jesus had told him. There you will see him, the man said, just as he told you. It was not over for Peter. God still had plans for him. John tells us a wonderful follow-up story 
about Jesus and Peter on the beach. If you've ever read John chapter 21, fascinating story where Jesus is interacting with Peter and he asks him a question three times. First time he asks the question, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you hear the reflection back to Peter's boast? Lord, I love you more than these guys. My love for you is greater than theirs. Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these guys? He says, Lord, I just love you. Never mind about them. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I compared myself with them. Look, it's just me. And I love you. And Jesus asked him the question three times. Oh, the man must have had three just ringing. Three strikes, I'm out. Three times I fell asleep. Three times I did not. Now Jesus is asking me three times, do you love me? And each time, almost to the point of exasperation, Lord, you know. You know all things. I do love you. That's good, Peter. Here's what I want you to do. Now you get it. Now go feed my sheep. Our greatest failure, with his great grace, produces faithful servants. Peter went on to be a leader in the New Testament church. Peter took on an unusual role in establishing and leading and caring for and guiding the New Testament church. This was the guy who committed the greatest failure. His failure mixed with God's grace turns out to be a recipe for greatness in the kingdom. He knew now well who he was. First question of discipleship. Do you get it? Do you really understand? Do you really understand the need in your own heart, in your own life? Do you really understand who you are? Do you really understand who Jesus is? Do you really see the contrast between his righteousness and your unrighteousness? Do you, do you get it? Do you understand what we're talking about here? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand this gospel of grace that you so desperately need more than you realize you need? Do you realize the supply of God's grace is far more than you ever imagined you needed or could even receive? Do you understand? Well, now Peter does. Now he gets it. Now, Peter, are you ready to stand firm? Now that you understand the truth, are you, in fact, ready to stand firm in it? We know from legend or history that Peter took his stand for the Lord to the very end and was, in fact, martyred, crucified. Legend has it that he asked to be crucified upside down. 
Now we have a man who is willing to stand by the truth of who Jesus is and the gospel to the very end, even when his very life was threatened. He was a martyr, a witness. He had a testimony. He held to it to the very end. Friends, do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand the concepts that we're talking about here? Do you grasp these truths and will you stand firm to what you know to be true? It's somewhat understood that Mark is writing based on everything Peter told him. The whole account has Peter all over it. So there's a bit of an understanding that Mark is actually kind of writing, you could say, almost a biography of Peter. Now, there's more than that. Obviously, he's writing about Jesus and who Jesus is, but it seems to be through the lens of Peter's biography, as if Peter's been feeding Mark all the data for this. And when you think about this, I don't know how you feel, but I know when I screw up, I'd like to sort of keep things on the low and would probably prefer that not everybody always know every time I screw up. Feels better if you don't know everything about me. Here we have something very different. Peter gets something about the kingdom. Can you imagine if I came up to you and said, I want to write a book about your life? And you were like airing all the dirty laundry and all the failures. Why, why, like, why would you do that? I think that's not the book that I want written. And yet, Peter does. Because Peter got it. Because Peter knows something about the Savior. It has a remarkable way of taking our worst failures, our worst situations, our greatest setbacks, and somehow pouring his grace into them. And this chemistry seems to take place where somehow these failures, these mess-ups, these life-altering mistakes seem to come out with some unusual, new, fresh glory. That's how the kingdom of God works. I wonder, well, I don't really wonder. I know many of us in the room have stuff that is taking place in our lives where we're kind of like at that point where Peter broke down and wept. Can you imagine what was going through Peter's mind? It's, it's over. I'm done. Nothing good can happen in my life from this moment forward. I mean, I blew it in the worst way. I took the biggest stand, and I had the greatest fall. It's all over for me. This will never be made right. I can never see myself getting on top of this thing again. The fall was too bad, too deep. The trouble too big. I don't see a way out of this. And yet, that was exactly the place Jesus 
wanted to get him to in order to realize the power of the grace of God to take our unfaithfulness and our failures and mix it with his faithfulness and his virtue and turn us into something unusual, a trophy of God's grace. I wonder if some of you are presently struggling under the perception, the feeling, the sense that what you did or what happened to you or how you responded has somehow marked you, identified you, and has you stuck feeling like, I guess this is it for me. And maybe this means now I've got to be in some kind of plan B, plan C, plan D of God for my life because I screwed up here. I messed up here. And I don't think anything can be quite right from this moment forward. There's a reason Peter told Mark, don't skimp on my screw-up when you write this book because everybody needs to know how the grace of God works. Everybody needs to understand how powerful this is. So take me, the worst of screw-ups, and write it out, plain as can be, and make sure they get it and make sure they feel it. Make sure they know how low I dropped so that they will see how high Christ lifted me up afterward. I want everyone to know about the power of the grace of God in the lives of sinners like you and me. Friends, I don't know all the details of your life. I can tell you this with full assurance. You take your failures you take your screw-ups, you take your problems, and you plunge them down into the grace of God, I promise you will be amazed at what comes out of what the Lord does with that. You think it wasn't supposed to happen, shouldn't be like this, will never be right, will never be the same. You will come to find out, oh, this is precisely what the Lord was doing in your life. It's exactly what he wanted so that his grace could make something beautiful and powerful and amazing out of what you see at the time being nothing but trouble, nothing but bad. Will the worship team come on up? We'll close with a song. God pray for you. Father, if those that are listening to me and some that are stuck in that state of the crime was committed, the deed has been done, the situation seems fixed. I pray that 
by your spirit, you would open their eyes to see. While our lives might be filled with failures and setbacks and troubles, your grace is such a powerful agent to make all things new. And so pray that you breathe fresh hope and fresh faith into the hearts of each one of us to be so amazed at your faithfulness. We have to come to terms with our unfaithfulness. What is amazing is that you remain faithful and you are faithful for us. Help us to see. Help us to understand in Jesus' name.